Hey, what's good, Rocky Peak? It is good to be with you once again. If you happen to be joining us for the very first time this weekend, special welcome to you. We're glad that you're here. My name is Dre. I'm one of the pastors here at Rocky Peak, and I'm excited to be here for several reasons. The first of which, I am very excited that I get to be the first person to officially welcome you to the month of May. Now, May is hands down my favorite month of the year, and it's my favorite for several reasons. One, the weather here in Southern California is always wonderful in the month of May. Secondly, May the 4th, it's Star Wars Day. How do you not love that? But selfishly, the reason why May is my favorite month Duh, I was born in May. This is my month. And so to all my fellow May babies out there, we did it. We made it. And this is our time. The second reason I'm excited to be here is I'm excited for the teaching that we've got tonight. Really, what's, and what the Lord led this weekend is a continuation of the dialogue that we started a few weeks ago when we were looking at Jesus raising Lazarus and specifically how, the king, how King Jesus unleashes new life. And so I'm excited we get to continue that together this weekend. So to get ready for that time, I'm going to ask you to do two things for me, Rocky Peak. One, go ahead and get your note sheets ready, whether you're using them digitally or whether you've printed out a physical copy. And secondly, the most important thing is let's get our Bibles ready. Again, whether you've got a physical Bible or as we've been talking about the last several weeks, if you need a digital Bible, we highly recommend what's called the YouVersion, Y-O-U, YouVersion app. It is a free download from the app store of your choice that has multiple different translations and tools to be able to help guide you in your Bible study. I'm going to pray and we're going to dive right in. Jesus, as we gather again this weekend, no matter where it is that we're coming from, We're here to celebrate. We're here to declare. We're here to be immersed in your resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus, your resurrection, was not simply an event that happened some 2,000 years ago. It's not simply some simple remembrance that we had a few weeks ago. Your resurrection is the turning point of all creation. And so we are here to to celebrate. We are here to be reminded that we live in the aftermath of your resurrection. The fact that we can say that there is a risen King Jesus changes everything. And so as we continue to learn what that means for our individual lives, especially in a time of crisis such as this, We are excited that we get to open up your word, which is living and active. As I often pray as the communicator, I pray that I would become less and you, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the resurrected King, I pray that you would become much, much more in each of our eyes, in our hearts, and in our souls. And it is in your name, Jesus, that wherever it is we're at, we all say together, we all pray together, amen. Well, Rocky Peak, we're going to be continuing the series that we kicked off just a few short weeks ago called The Power of the Resurrection, Hope in Times of Crisis. Now, the heart behind this series is that the resurrection of Jesus is not the end of his life, nor is it the end of his story, but rather the resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of a brand new era. It's the beginning of a new era in his life, but it's also the beginning of a new era for all of creation. It's the beginning of a new era in our lives as well as we come to follow Jesus' leadership. 
And so throughout this series, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be focusing on the opening chapter, chapters of the book of Acts in the New Testament. Now, Acts was written by a Gentile doctor named Luke, and it's actually volume two or the second part of the gospel of Luke, the first book that he wrote. And what's happening in the opening chapters is that Luke is giving us an account of what happens immediately after the resurrection of Jesus. Now, with that series set up, what we're going to do is we're we're going to jump right in. So there in your note sheet, you've got a section titled The Apostles' Next Step. Got your Bibles, got your app, open them up, turn them on. We're going to go to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, and we're going to be starting in verse 6. And so this is starting to take place a little bit before where Michael led us last week, in which Jesus is about to ascend back into heaven to the right hand of the Father. And so the disciples, or now the apostles, they're asking him a series of a couple final questions. And so Acts 1.6, then they, again the apostles, gathered around Jesus and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now, last week, again, Michael touched on the ascension, so I'm not going to go too deep into it. But if we go back to that opening question that the apostles had asked, essentially, they're asking Jesus, so what happens next? What's the next step for us? What's the next step for you and your will and your plans? And Jesus gives them a two-part answer. The first thing that he says is, wait. Wait on me. Wait on my or God's timing. In fact, Jesus says, says, says to them something that is a common phrase in church culture or Christian culture, wait on the Lord. And the second part of the answer is that he gives them a promise. And he makes that promise out of God's authority, out of his authority now as the resurrection king. And it's a promise of power when the Holy Spirit comes. Now, specifically, what that means, we're going to unpack next week as we talk about the day of Pentecost. But let's talk about this main idea that they were asked to wait. And so the disciples had been in the situation, situations before in which they were asked to wait on the Lord. And admittedly, they did not handle that well. And so once again now, they're in the, they find themselves in a position where they're asked to wait, and they're going to model that they've now learned how to wait well. And so what we're going to do is we're going to skip ahead a few verses. And so we're going to go straight to verse 14. So as they wait, they gather together and starting in verse 14, they all join together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, brothers and sisters, the scriptures had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. 
And we're going to stop right here, but what Peter is going to continue to do is he's going to continue to lay out, lay out how everything that has happened to them, particularly with Judas betraying them, was fulfilling the prophecy of Scripture. He's showing that they're part of this bigger story, and he's revering, he's showing a very high view of Scripture itself. But the main thing I want to point out is that they model for us a key truth about waiting that waiting is not a time of inactivity. Waiting is not a passive act, but rather what these apostles model is that waiting is a time of activity. Specifically, what they model is that waiting is a time in which we experience formation, or rather we develop formation, as well as a time in which we experience or develop preparation. And so we see first and foremost the formation that as they wait, the most important thing they could do is deepen their relationship with Jesus. And they did that through prayer, by entering into his presence regularly together. We also see that they deepened their relationship in the way that they went to scriptures in seeing the bigger story and revering it. And we see that they began to prepare for their next season. Now they didn't know how long they were gonna be waiting. They didn't know what the next season was going to look like, but they knew they could take an active role. And for them, that meant, that meant uh, filling the spot that had been vacated due to Judas's betrayal and death. And so with that, as we leave the book of Acts, the topic on the table today, as Michael stated at the top of the service, the topic is waiting. Now I realize there aren't many of us out there that would hear that topic and go, yes, I'm excited about that. And we're gonna unpack that in a little bit. But specifically as we talk about waiting, we wanna answer these key questions of what does it really look like to wait on the Lord? And what does it really look like? What does it mean to wait well? And the reason why this is such a key topic despite many negative feelings I or any of us have towards the concept of waiting is that waiting is much more important to our spiritual growth. It's much more important to our spiritual maturity and development than we often realize. When we look at the big picture story of the Bible, when we look at the entirety of the scriptures, we see that this is, that, that waiting is a common theme. It's a common season. It's a common exercise practice. It is a development field that God uses for the good of his people. See, often in scripture, we see that God intentionally leads individuals or leads groups of people or entire nations to wait on him. And he may do that through their circumstances. He may do that through other means. But the reason why he does it, again, we see it in scripture, is because this is a vital way in which we grow our spiritual depth, maturity, but most importantly, our relationship with King Jesus. Now, the truth of the matter is that so many of us probably don't view waiting as a good thing, do we? The truth of the matter is that so many of us wouldn't say, you know what I'm really looking forward to? A long season of waiting on the Lord. And as we think through this, honestly, it's because waiting is hard. It's hard to view waiting in this light as I examine my own life in a moment of honesty because I don't like to wait. 
Rocky Peak, I wish I could stand up here this weekend and, and, and show you a model from the life of Dre. I wish I could be a model for glorious, patient waiting. I wish I could say, look at my life, follow in my footsteps. This is how you wait, but I can't because I'm very well aware of my damage. And one of the flaws in my character is that I am highly impatient. If physical dictionaries were still a thing, you would open it up to the word impatient and you would find a big old picture of Dre because I'm too much of a speed addict. I don't wait well. In fact, so many of us are naturally impatient. Some of us are better at this naturally than others, but all of us have our limits. All of us deal with being impatient in some way, shape, or form. And much of our lives, much of our culture, much of our world, to be frank, our drive, our goal is to eliminate weight. We live in something that I affectionately call a two-day shipping world. Now, hear me clearly, two-day shipping is a glorious thing, but in my impatience, I find that even that takes too long, and I'm constantly checking my tracking. When is it going to be brought to my door? Now, I'm bringing a little bit of levity to the situation and generalizing a bit. See, again, for some of us, there are certain times, there are certain ways in which waiting can be okay, in which waiting can be a good thing because we enjoy what we're waiting for. And so let's focus the topic a little bit further. Let's make it a little bit more specific. How do you feel about unexpected waiting? It's one thing if you get to wait because you choose to. But how do you feel when the choice is taken from you and you find yourself in a situation in which you are now waiting because of unexpected circumstances outside of your control? Let me give you a couple of examples of what I mean. Back when we were able to go to Target or the store freely, when you were in a rush or needed to make it home or needed to make it to that birthday party, did you find yourself celebrating when the line at checkout was much longer than you anticipated? How about when you were running late for work or late to get your kids to school and you found yourself stuck in unexpected traffic? Did you celebrate that? Did you cheer and go, man, I'm so glad I get to wait right now? How about the last time you went into the DMV and even though you had meticulously studied which is the best, most awkward time of day to go and there won't be people there and you walked in just to find an absurdly long wait, did you celebrate and go, man, I'm so excited I get to wait? See, often all of us find ourselves naturally impatient when we're dealing with unexpected waiting. Now let's take that topic of unexpected waiting and go even deeper still. How do you feel about unexpected waiting when it's more than simply uncomfortable or an inconvenience? Honestly. How do you feel about unexpected waiting when it's significantly painful? See, often unexpected waiting that is tied to a crisis or caused by a crisis is not, as I mentioned, just uncomfortable or an inconvenience. Often that's the waiting that hurts because we're suffering. Often that's the waiting in which we've experienced a deep loss and we find ourselves with sorrow and in depression. Often it is that unexpected waiting in a time of a crisis in which we find ourselves waiting even though it feels as if our lives or the world around us is falling apart. See, all of us would say, no, 
That is not the type of waiting I want to experience. In fact, as we find ourselves in this challenging time, as we find ourselves facing this crisis of this global pandemic, that one of the most challenging things for each and every one of us is the waiting. Because we're realizing we don't really have any control to speed things up. In fact, many of us have found ourselves in this crisis going, I'm sick of waiting. Let's just end it already. Let's be done with this. Many of us are feeling anger, sadness, fear, loss, sorrow, and it has us going, I am done with waiting. How could good possibly come out of a, wait, out of a period of waiting that costs so, so much? And wherever it is that you're joining us from this weekend, if that's you, I want you to know a couple of key things. One, your honesty has been heard by the Lord. He doesn't minimize it. He's not angered by it. He's your father that loves you and he says you are safe to come to him the way you are. But secondly, the reason why we're here this weekend is because Jesus wants to give us a bigger vision. He wants to shatter the filters through which we see waiting, through which we see him in the waiting. And he wants to show us that waiting isn't something to be avoided. Yes, often we don't have control over it, but this can be one of the most significant seasons of our lives. It's something that Michael had talked about way back when we first began to talk about crisis, that often in crisis, there is opportunity unlike no other time. And so what we're gonna do again is we're gonna turn to scripture and as I often like to say, scripture isn't simply ink on a page, but scripture is the voice of King Jesus in our lives. And when we encounter the voice of our King, it breathes new life into us. And so in our time, again, in scripture, what we're gonna do is we're gonna see a beautiful model of what it means to wait on the Lord. We're gonna see the honest struggle because of difficult circumstances, a crisis, but we're also gonna see a beauty as the Lord reveals a much bigger vision for what waiting is and how waiting develops and forms our very character. So there on your note sheet, you've got a section that I would say is appropriately titled called When Will This End? Honestly, have you asked yourself that a lot recently? When will this end? And so what we're going to do is we're going to turn to the Old Testament, the first half of our Bible, and we're going to turn to a book called Habakkuk. Specifically, we're going to be going to Habakkuk chapter 2. And so as you're turning to Habakkuk chapter 2, what I want to do before we jump in is I want to set up some context so we have a better understanding, not just of the book of Habakkuk, but about the state of the world at the time that Habakkuk is taking place. And if you're new to Rocky Peak, context is what allows us to both understand but also experience scripture the way that God intended for it to be understood and experienced. Context and learning to see the Bible in context really is the heartbeat of why we teach the way we do here at Rocky Peak. And so with that, Habakkuk in the Old Testament is one of 12 books that we organize or group by calling them the minor prophets, which refers to the length of their book. They're much shorter books than the other books, other prophets in the Old Testament. Habakkuk itself is only three chapters. Now the man Habakkuk 
was a prophet in the southern kingdom of Judah. And his book is wrestling with, it's dealing with the end of what's called the kingdom era. And I don't have much time to dig into that, but way back in the fall, which admittedly at this point feels like 50 years ago, we did a series called Prophets, Priests, and Kings. And so if you would love to gain some more understanding or an idea of what the kingdom era, wa era was, I'd love to encourage you to check out that series. It's available on the Rocky Peak YouTube page. But briefly put, a quick snapshot, our story so far is that when it comes to the southern kingdom of Judah, we're dealing with the aftermath of King Josiah. Again, I taught on King Josiah in that Kingdom Era series. I went into much more detail then, but King Josiah was a rare good king of the southern kingdom. In fact, he led Judah back into a season of prosperity, a season of prosperity economically and politically, but most important, a season of prosperity when it came to their spiritual state. Josiah recommitted himself and the nation to following after the Lord God Yahweh and they experienced significant renewal. But now circumstances have changed. In fact, circumstances have drastically changed and they've gone from excellent to an immensely difficult crisis. Following King Josiah, the kings after him were evil. And once again, God was being abandoned and forgotten. This was a time of violent political upheaval, both internally, but also because of external threats, foreign powers and nations that were attacking the kingdom of Judah. This season could be described, as I heard one pastor put it, as definitely an evil season. And so the book of Habakkuk, is a really honest dialogue between this prophet and the Lord God. And in fact, as we talk about honesty, it begins with Habakkuk sharing an incredible vulnerability. And so there in your note sheet, I put some of the opening verses from chapter one. From chapter one. This is how Habakkuk begins the book. How long, Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen or cry out to you violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Now in chapter one, he goes on, there's more of this, but essentially Habakkuk is coming with an honest complaint. God, this crisis does not make sense with who you are. God, I know that you're good. God, I know that you're for your people. God, I know that you don't want wickedness and sin to abound. So why does it seem like you're not doing anything? And before we move on, I need to ask you honestly, can you emotionally connect with this? I'm willing to bet that as we go through our own crisis, we can connect with this in a way that we couldn't before. Whether it's this pandemic or any other crisis, have you ever found yourself wondering why my circumstances seem to be in contradiction to who God is? And so in chapter one, God does respond there in Enochia to put one of, at the beginning of it, look at the nations, God says, and watch and be utterly amazed for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if I were to, even if, if you were told. Would you underline that? Something that you would not believe, even if you were told. 
And so let me paraphrase this for us. God's response is, I am God and you are not. Again, his response is, I am God and you are not. In fact, it's a very similar response to what he gives Job, which is another book on deep suffering. As Job has asked the similar question of why throughout his book in chapter 38, God says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Now we need to understand something important that God's response is not antagonistic. He was not being antagonistic to Job. He's not being antagonistic to Habakkuk. But the reason why God is responding in this way is this is absolutely essential for us to know as our foundation when it comes to not only living for God day by day, but when it comes to learning how to wait and suffer well, we need to understand that God is much, much, much bigger than I ever will be. And because of that, I can't wrap my mind around the thoughts of God. Because of that, I will not always make sense of what God do, is doing. I will not always understand. But if I'm gonna learn how to live well, if I'm gonna learn how to wait well, then I need to trust in the God that is much bigger than I ever will be. And this gets tested for Habakkuk. Because as God continues to respond in chapter one, remember he says, you wouldn't believe even if I told you. But he does go on to open up the curtain a little bit and he tells him, Habakkuk, this crisis that is grieving you, it's going to get worse. I'm gonna raise up another nation and this crisis, God doesn't use the time frame, but we look back on history that this crisis is gonna continue for another 70, 80, 90 years. God essentially tells them there is not gonna be a quick or easy solution to this crisis, that throughout this crisis, you and your people are going to experience significant pain and you're gonna experience significant loss. Essentially, God goes through chapter one and tells Habakkuk, I'm, I need you to wait on me. Now you gotta imagine that, was, that had to be difficult for Habakkuk to hear, right? Because chapter one ends with Habakkuk and I'm paraphrasing, his response to God is, that's your answer? That's your answer to this crisis? That it's, I'm gonna have to wait longer? Essentially, he ends chapter one by saying, God, that is not what I wanted to hear. And again, how many of us can honestly emotionally connect with that as our current crisis has stretched on longer and longer than we anticipated or hoped or prayed that it would to sit here and go, I need to continue to wait? That is not what I wanna hear or do. So as we go into chapter two, which is where we're gonna start our time together, we're gonna see that God has a much bigger and a much more beautiful purpose behind the waiting. And so Habakkuk chapter two, starting at verse one, and as I always say, get your pens ready, get the highlight function and your apps ready because we're gonna mark this passage up. Verse one, I will stand at my watch. Would you underline that? I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look, would you underline the word look? I will look to see what he will say to me. 
and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Now this verse, verse, verse is Habakkuk's response and this is extraordinary because I talked about this whole emotional roller coaster of where we were in chapter one and so God is saying, you're gonna need to wait on me and so again, Habakkuk is probably feeling multitudes of conflicting emotions but what does he open chapter two with? He says, okay. He says, okay. He makes the commitment that I will wait on you, God. And what is so beautiful about how he, de how he describes his commitment is that in his imagery, he models what the apostles modeled in, when, in our time in Acts 1, that this time of waiting is not a time that is a standstill. It's not a passive time, but it is a time to be active. See, one of the things we dislike often about waiting is that we go into waiting with a big misconception. We go into waiting with this misconception that to wait means it is a full stop, meaning that we stop and don't do anything, and we also have this misconception that it means that God stops, and God is no longer active or working until he deems, it, he deems a time to do otherwise. But that is not what waiting is at all. And so first we're gonna look at Habakkuk, who is the model for us. And so what he does is he describes his active role in the waiting, and he describes himself as a watchman somebody whose responsibility is to watch. And so he refers to the ramparts. And so think of a fortress or a castle or a walled city. The ramparts was a tower or one of the highest posts. And so what he's saying is that in the waiting, what he's gonna do is he's going to actively take his post. He's gonna go to the highest point because from there he can gain a much bigger picture. See, he models that the waiting is an opportunity for us to see a much bigger picture because when he's positioned up in the tower or the ramparts, he can see the enemy coming. He can see the danger approaching. He can see it attacking. He can see the losses they're taking, but he can also see past the enemy. He can see to the reinforcements, the hope that is coming. And so what's gonna happen next is God is gonna respond to Habakkuk's commitment. And his first words kind of make me laugh because he says, write this down, essentially because, well, people are gonna need this. Both then and now, people are gonna need to know what it means to wait. They're gonna need to wrestle, but they're gonna need to see a beautiful truth. And so let's continue in verse two. Then the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. Would you underline that? In appointed time, it speaks of the end. Would you underline the word end? And finally, and will not prove false. Would you underline that? Though it linger, wait for it. Now, I've had you underline up to this point, but when it comes to wait for it, I want you to put a giant box around it. And I realize a lot of your apps don't let you do it, but figure out a way. Put a big box around it. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and it will not delay. And so what does God tell Habakkuk? Is that there will be an end to this crisis. 
There will be an end to the suffering. But until then, he talks about the appointed time. There is a time in which this will end and that time is when it will end for the greatest good, which is God is always at work to accomplish is the greatest good. But what he's saying through this is there will be an end, but until then, I am calling on you to beautifully trust me. Trust me. I am God I am king, there will be an end. And he is reminding us that in the waiting, God is not passive, but he is active at work for our greatest good, or in other words, new life. The heart and the foundation of this whole series is that the resurrection shows that Jesus is king. And last week, as Michael unpacked that in his message, one of his points was that Jesus is king over our current crisis. And so he has authority. He has not lost control. But I like something that Michael said last week that really resonated with me, is that we don't always know or understand what King Jesus is up to or doing through a crisis. When it comes to this coronavirus, this COVID pandemic, I couldn't begin to tell you exactly what God is doing or what he's up to. But what I'm reminded is that while I can't explain it fully, I know that he is at work. And not just is he at work, he is at work for my greatest good. And so the reason why this is so encouraging to me is to be reminded that God is at work in this time of waiting. To be reminded that God is at work in this time of crisis is to be reminded that the pain that we have experienced, whether in this crisis or any other crisis before it, our pain has a purpose. There is a purpose to your pain. There is a purpose through our pain. Again, we see this throughout scripture in the big picture story that it is telling, that pain, that crisis, that suffering, that wasn't God's original intent nor his design for his creation. It's a result of sin and now living in a fallen, broken world, but God is king over it all. And so he will use pain, he will use suffering, he will use the darkest of circumstances to unleash the greatest of good, to unleash a new life in ways that are bigger and more beautiful than we could ever possibly imagine. The most beautiful truth, the most beautiful life, the most beautiful beginnings are often unleashed through the power of King Jesus out of the darkest of pains and the deepest of hurts. Rocky Peak, what is so beautiful about this is that knowing that he is active in our waiting, knowing that there is a purpose to our pain is reminding us of the beautiful love of King Jesus, that your pain in this crisis, those of you that have suffered financially, those of you that have suffered in your health because of the coronavirus or have a loved one or a friend that have, those of you that have experienced loss, those of you that are weary from homeschooling your kids or the fact that you can't see your friends and family, those of you that are angry because of the lockdown, whatever it may be, whatever it is your pain, being reminded that the king has a purpose to our pain is reminding us that your pain, Rocky Peak, has not been forgotten. 
Your pain has not been minimized. Rather, King Jesus has felt your pain. King Jesus is grieved by your pain. It's that point we made back when we looked at how he wept over the pain at Lazarus' suffering. But not only that, King Jesus has endured your pain, Rocky Peak, and King Jesus has crucified it. He crucified our pain on his cross because after he died and when he rose again, the king of all kings, King Jesus, conquered sin, pain, and death. And now he can take the powers of death and darkness itself and unleash new life through it. What the enemy meant to destroy, the Lord, King Jesus, will use to unleash good and new life beyond anything we could possibly imagine. And as we continue in verse four, see the enemy is puffed up, meaning he's arrogant. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. And so everything we've been talking about so far has been building to this right here in verse four, is what it means to wait well on the Lord. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Would you underline that, Rocky Peak? But the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. And so let's unpack this. Christ follower, do you see yourself as a righteous person? See, as we talk about misconceptions, we often have a misconception of what it means to be righteous. To be righteous does not mean to be perfect, flawless, without sin or error. To be righteous does not mean to be all-knowing or to be some sort of super Christ follower. And so feel free to breathe a sigh of relief. But understand that to be righteous, that's God's epic vision for your life. That to be a a person that is described by being righteous is who Jesus has freed you to be. And so what does it mean to be righteous? Well, Christ follower. To be righteous means that because of the work of Jesus, because of his death, which forgave us of our sins, because of his resurrection, which conquered sin, the grave, and the sin, the grave, the darkness, suffering, and crisis, because of the work of Jesus, we can now live in right relationship with God the Father. Because of our sin, we could not live in right relationship with God the Father. But again, because of the work of Jesus, we now can. That's what it means to be righteous. And here God is telling Habakkuk, that the foundation of a righteous life, what it means to live a righteous life, what it means to wait as a righteous person, what it even means to suffer as a righteous person is faithfulness. And faithfulness is commitment. That's what it means to be a person of faith. To be a person of faith means that we are actively committed to who Jesus is. 
Being a person of faithfulness is not a commitment to our desired outcomes. Being a person of faithfulness is not a commitment to what we hope changes in our circumstances, but being a person of faithfulness is a commitment, a daily act of commitment in which we declare and we live, we breathe out of a commitment to who Jesus is, the very character and identity of our King. It makes me think of what a marriage is supposed to be. If you think of the vows that are often given, the promises made at a wedding ceremony, is you're saying that I am committed to this person regardless of the circumstances. A marriage cannot be built on, I'm committed to you as long as nothing ever rocks the boat. I'm committed to you as long as we don't suffer. No, it's saying I'm committed to you, the person you are. And that's what it means to be faithful to Jesus. In fact, verse four is so important to our development, to know what it means to wait well on the Lord. Then in the New Testament, it's quoted three times twice by the Apostle Paul, once by the author of Hebrews. And the reason why this is so important is that in these times of waiting, particularly in these times of waiting in which we face a crisis, there is an opportunity like no other time to grow, to develop, and to deepen our faithfulness in the very identity of King Jesus. See, those of you familiar with my teaching, a lot of you know that I often go back to Ephesians chapter one. One of my favorite passages is the apostle Paul is praying for the church of Ephesus. He's heard good things about their growth and their development. And as he prays, he says that the most important thing I can pray is that you would know Jesus better. And so as we learn to wait well on the Lord, this is an opportunity again like no other to develop, to experience what it means to be righteous and faithful as we encounter more of Jesus's identity. It is through waiting in the times of crisis in which we learn in a new way that even in our deepest suffering, even in our darkest thoughts and emotions, even in our longest wait, our King Jesus remains good. He remains present even in the dark and he remains in control. Waiting is an opportunity to develop that faithfulness. And so we're gonna stop here, but we need to quickly kind of unpack the rest of this book. That as chapter two continues, God shares five woes, basically how the enemy, how this crisis will eventually be judged, how it's gonna end. And it's not in your note sheet, it's not on the slides, but I wanna read for you how he ends chapter 20, excuse me, chapter two in verse 20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And what that means is the Lord is king and hush. Not in a disciplined sense, but a restful hush, hush, because the king has got this. You know, when I first read this a few weeks ago, it immediately took me to Psalm 46, which is there in your note sheet, in which the psalmist says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. 
I will be exalted in the earth. Be still and know that I am God. In other words, wait. Pause and wait and experience who King Jesus really is. And it's in that place of waiting, it's in that place of experiencing his identity that the righteous are developed and their faithfulness is grown. And before I go any further, Rocky Peak, I feel like we need to take a little bit of an interlude with this verse. And I feel like there are many of us here, myself included, that we need this word from the Lord, be still and know that I am God, to speak to the core of our beings. And so I'm gonna read this out loud just a few times, two or three, and I wanna invite you either to read the words along with me, to say it out loud if you choose, or to close your eyes and receive it, because I think this is the core of what the Lord needs each and every one of us to hear today. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. And the last time, be still and know that I am God. Amen. Now you gotta imagine that in two short chapters, Habakkuk's life is being turned upside down. And again, that's another opportunity that we find in the waiting. The King Jesus uses the time of waiting to redefine everything about us, to redefine everything we thought we knew, starting with how we see him and his identity. And so the final chapter of Habakkuk, chapter three, is a prayer, it's a psalm. It's a song that's both a praise and a lament. And it closes with there in your note sheet. Habakkuk says that though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine, Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Would you underline that? Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. He does not say I will rejoice in my circumstances. He does not say I will rejoice in the deliverance of my crisis, but he says that I will now, in this moment, rejoice in the Lord, in who God is. Habakkuk does not deny how difficult the crisis he's facing is, nor Rocky Peak are we asked to either. But the beautiful model is that his ability to praise doesn't flow out of his circumstances. It flows out of his awareness of who God is. He praises because he can say, God, I know who you are. God, I trust who you are. And then this time of waiting, I will deepen my roots further into your very identity. And so that's our passage. That's our time in scripture, Rocky Peak. And so what I wanna do is what we've been presented with is a radically different paradigm of what it means to wait on the Lord and what it means to wait well. And so I wanna continue to unpack that with the time that we have left. And so there in your note sheet, you got a section titled Waiting on the Lord, A New Paradigm. And your first fill-in is this, waiting significantly deepens our relationship with Jesus.
Waiting significantly deepens our relationship with Jesus. As we started our time asking what good could possibly come out of a difficult season of waiting, we see throughout our scriptures God giving us a new paradigm, a new vision that waiting is, a, is an opportunity, is a time to be a season of growth in our spiritual lives. It's a time to grow us in the here and now, but it's also a time to grow us, to prepare us for the next step, for what's ahead. And specifically, how God accomplishes this is your next villain. That waiting reveals and reinforces Jesus' true identity. What we need most as Christ followers is not a remedy. What we need most as Christ followers, as all creation, is not necessarily a solution. What we need most every day, let alone in a crisis, is new life. And new life can only be given by the King of Kings, King Jesus for those of us that are weary, for those of us that are angry, for those of us that are hurt, for those of us that are depressed, for those of us that feel broken, for those of us that are experiencing sorrow, for those of us that are physically hurting, whatever it is, we don't simply need a remedy, we need a resurrection, and resurrection only comes through the power of King Jesus. We experience resurrection only from the resurrected one himself. And so again, waiting is an opportunity like no other to see and experience a massive king, a resurrected King Jesus. And when we deepen our relationship with Jesus, when we experience a bigger king than we thought, than we envisioned, than we've experienced before, what happens through that is that the king breathes new life into us. Look at a couple quotes there in your note sheet, first from Catherine and Jay Wolfe. When we choose to open our hearts and receive Jesus on his terms, we really begin to know him. And when we begin to know him, we more readily open our hearts to receive more of him. The cycle, this cycle of trust becomes a holy unraveling of ourselves and a stunning revelation of him. The next quote by Alan Fadling, perhaps like a tree that has to sink its roots deeper during a drought, I will learn I will choose to learn. Can you stop and underline that, please? I will learn. I will choose to learn to sink my roots down more deeply to where I might find refreshment in God. And so as we wait, as we develop our faithfulness in who King Jesus is, we then experience the King breathing new life into us. And when King Jesus breathes new life into us, it completely transforms who we are to the core of our being from the inside out. And we not only become a person that can wait in a new way, in a more beautiful way than we could have ever possibly imagined before, but we become a person with the breath of King Jesus in us that learns how to suffer well alongside our waiting. He changes our identity. And so let me illustrate this. So many of you have seen these before, right? These are just simple name tags. And what's the purpose of a name tag? 
Well, you put it on so that people know who you are. It reveals something about you. It reveals your name. It reveals something about your identity. And so, again, if I'm honest with you, one of the things that I really don't like about waiting is that waiting reveals truths about me that I wish weren't true. Waiting reveals flaws in my character. Waiting, re waiting reveals the type of person that I really am under pressure. And so, in a sense, waiting puts these tags on me that brings to the surface some uncomfortable parts of my identity. So, for example, in a time of waiting, waiting might reveal that I'm untrusting, that I don't trust God or my key relationships in life. Waiting might reveal that I'm selfish, that I only want my will, I only care about my way, God, and that includes you too. Waiting often reveals that I'm angry. I'm tired of waiting. I'm tired of suffering. I'm tired of seeing people I love suffer. Waiting often reveals that I'm scared. I'm scared for my health, scared for the health of people I love. I'm scared to go to Trader Joe's or Target because what if I contract something there? Waiting often reveals that I'm impatient, that I can't peacefully wait for the Lord's appointed time. Waiting often reveals that I'm stubborn. No, my idea is best, God. I don't trust you because my way makes sense. Your way doesn't. Waiting often reveals that I'm exhausted. I don't know if I can do this any longer. Can you relate with any of those? Can you relate with all of those? But again, here's the opportunity in our waiting. Waiting is a time of formation. And so what happens when we learn to wait on the Lord is that as he breathes new life into us, what he does is that he removes these old tags. He removes these old sinful labels. And what he does, he replaces them with new tags. He replaces them with his character. And so as we learn to wait, as we grow our faithfulness in God's identity, the new tags that he breathes into us, he begins to put new tags on us that now we are people that can wait through the attitude of being loving. I can be a loving person in the waiting and the suffering that because of King Jesus' breath in my lungs, I can be a person of patience in the waiting. That because of Jesus, I don't have to be exhausted. I can be energized in a new, in a supernatural way through his spirit. That because of King Jesus in my life, his breath in my lungs, I can be empowered. I don't have to be weak. I can be strong in him. That because of King Jesus, I can be a person that has hope in the waiting and the suffering. That because of King Jesus in my heart and in my lungs, because of his breath, I can have joy in the wait. I can have joy in the dark. I can have joy in the suffering. Ultimately, when Jesus breathes new life into us, the one tag that he puts on us above all odds is that we are children of God. And when we remember who he has transformed us to be, that changes everything. Look on your note sheet in Romans chapter eight. Paul says that I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that'll be revealed in us. 
For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. And Michael briefly touched on this last week that he's writing to Christ followers in the heart of the Roman Empire, in the city of Rome itself, and there to be a Christ follower, to say that Jesus is Lord rather than Caesar is Lord was essentially a death sentence. He is writing to people in unimaginable suffering and he is not minimizing their suffering, but instead he's saying, remember who you are and because of his breath in you you will wait and you will suffer in a new more beautiful way because of King Jesus and so again to take the opportunity to wait well means that we need to be active and be intentional and so quickly before we end our time together there in your note sheet you've got one last section called transform through waiting And your last fill-in is this, we need to be intentional in trust, in developing our trust in the identity of Jesus, in rooting ourselves in what is known rather than the unknown, which is our circumstances. And there in your note sheet again, I have another quote by Catherine and Jay Wolf, and I've talked about their story before, that at 26, 27, in her, early, in her late 20s, Catherine suffered a catastrophic spinal stroke. And in the years following, she's had at least 11 surgeries. Her and her husband, Jay, are such heroes to me because they are a beautiful example of what it means to wait well. And in response to yet another surgery, this is what they write, Yet that experience, the surgery, and all the ones before it, and all the ones that come after it remind us that our future in this world will always be outside our control. It will always be unknown. Today could be the best day, the worst day, or the last day of our lives, but we don't have to live in fear. Underline that. But we don't have to live in fear. Even in the face of the unknown, we can remember what? and who we do know and help each other remember it too. In doing so, we can start to know the truest things again. And then below that, famously from Corey ten Boom, a Christian Dutch watchmaker who ended up in a series of concentration camps for hiding Jews during World War II, but yet found the hope of Jesus in that time of suffering and waiting, writes, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. So practically speaking, how can we be intentional about developing, the, developing our trust in who Jesus is? Your feeling is this, time in scripture, by spending time in scripture, because it is the voice of the king for all people. The Bible wasn't written exclusively for pastors or scholars for the super Christians or the perfect. The Bible was given to all people so that we could know and experience the identity of Jesus for ourselves. See, we've talked often that so much of scripture was about crisis, but with that, so much of scripture is about how God is king above it all and leads to new life and greater good even in the deepest of hurts. But also, what I love about scripture is that it reveals our family. People like Habakkuk, people like Paul, like the apostles themselves, they're part of the family of God. They're our family, Christ followers. We get to see their stories and how relatable they are, but we also get to see how God eventually answered their pain, their waiting, and their situation. I love on your note sheet how Tim Keller puts it. 
Trusting the Lord in all things is a difficult assignment. Thankfully, the Bible does not help us do that only with commands and directives. It also gives us stories. And so there are a lot of ways to get started in this. First of all, if you already have a rhythm with spending time regularly, daily in the Bible, I wanna encourage you, keep following your rhythm. But if you need a starting point, and again, there's many different ways to do this, I wanna recommend one, and that's by using the YouVersion app we've been talking about the last several weeks. Not only is it free, not only does it contain many Bible translation, but it contains hundreds of Bible reading plans, devotional if you will. And so we have this slide up on the screen that gives you just a couple of different examples. One, John Piper, who's a pastor and author that I really love, he's got a nine-day study appropriately called Coronavirus in Christ. Secondly, there's a seven-day study called Knowing God's Heart, where over the course of one week, it unpacks the character, the identity of Jesus. And the day, the first day, it starts with the verse in the Psalms we went over, be still and know that I am God. And the third recommendation I wanna do is by an awesome organization called The Bible Project. It's a 50-day study. It's a little bit longer, but you can do it, Rocky Peak. And it's a study on Luke and Acts, these two volumes that this Dr. Luke wrote, and you get to see it all together as one collection. And so with that, Rocky Peak, I'm gonna invite the worship team to come on out. And specifically, as we close our time, I've asked them to sing a song that we've sung many times at Rocky Peak, but I really felt was really beautiful for our time together in that it calls out that in the waiting, God, you are there. It's a song that is all about control. And so whatever this looks like for you, I want to invite you and encourage you to engage with this time. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you give us a new vision Thank you that give us a new paradigm for what it means to wait on you, what it means to wait well, that in this time of waiting, in this time of crisis, in this time of suffering, it doesn't mean that you are not at work. It doesn't mean that you've abandoned us, but it means the opposite. You are at work, unleashing a greater good, unleashing a new life in all of us, Jesus. And that's our prayer right now, that we would not come out of this time of waiting without looking to you for transformation. As I said last time, one day this room will be filled again. But when that day comes, this room is not meant to be filled by the same type of people, the people we were, but it's meant to be filled by people that have been transformed through this crisis, that have been transformed through the waiting, that we have deepened and developed our faithfulness in who you are. And so King Jesus, we are here to listen and follow to how you are developing us in the waiting. And as the song will declare, we praise you because you are King, you are above this crisis, crisis and you are in control and it is in your name that we all said amen